0: We got the intro music back, Chad. Yeah, man, yes, how'd you sir, do that, man? Or, I don't know. The magic of the internet or phones or whatever. We made it happen. This is the Boardroom Podcast. I'm Ward 6 Alderman Ben Piper. Ward 4 Alderman Chad Wicker. Coming to you from the Hernando Golf and Racquet Club uh, studio. I guess a yeah. yeah, studio. Yeah. We got a foosball table hey, in here. Bathroom right there. We got all kind. Of, we got everything. A little bit. They got a leather chair. He's yeah. uh, we're sitting in here. It's pretty we're getting nice. there. We're getting there slowly but surely. Um, your uh, your subscription dollars at work. Um, zero in, zero out. So we're. Yeah. Just I guess we
1: probably need to say that uh, you know we we're no longer recording with uh, Shelby Row Productions with Derek, but that no, nothing, no hard feelings there. We just uh, financially we we couldn't afford to keep going there. Uh, doing it that way, so we're kind of doing it on our own and save a little money. Because again, we're not, you know, let's Ben stealing a bunch of money. I don't know about. We're not no, making any money doing this. So, but mm-hmm. if if you do have podcast needs, I would encourage you to to, to reach out to Derek at, at Shelby Row Productions because they are in the heart of Ward Four. And they are in the heart of Ward Four. Now we're in the heart of Ward Three, I think.
0: Bill, good people uh, over at uh, Shelby Road Productions. We appreciate them helping us get this thing. Off the ground, and we're gonna see where we can take it from here. Chad kind of is the producer now, so (laughs) that's scary. You know, hit the uh, hit the wonk wonk on us uh, real quick. I don't know. We got we we see we might have these sound effects. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) That is man. That's straight out of 1938. (laughs) Um, So we're uh, we've got a a great guest uh, for us this week, State Senator Daniel Sparks, who uh, who represents kind of that uh, district five. yeah, Yeah. 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 But he he, he he's the he's Iuka he's area, I think.
1: Uh, he's one of, he's one of Delbert Hoseman's kind of chief lieutenants there and okay. in, in the state senate he he's he uh, he has assisted me uh, in the sheriff's department getting some things done at the uh, with the corrections committee he's uh, the vice chairman there along okay. with Juan Barmer, who who is the chairman there and the uh, great relationship he's also attorney he's representing some clients up here and I've got to know him over the last you know two years or so. And uh, just a great guy and a, a very informed, a very smart guy, knows, knows his stuff. And his, I think you're going to enjoy the interview. We we, talk, we touch on uh, some of the agenda items for the next legislative session. We talk about uh, campaign finance reform and some other things. Uh, the, some, some more on the lieutenant governor's race. He, he was a big proponent, supporter of, of Delbert. So...
0: It's a good look look inside some state politics. Definitely some things in the uh, the legislature, but also statewide. I think just yeah, you know there's kind of yeah. some, some issues there within corrections, and campaign finance. Like well,
1: I mentioned. wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if you see Daniel Sparks run for something statewide at some point.
0: There we go. My breaking news. I don't know. We're we're getting man. I'll tell you what, Mississippi Today better count their days because we're coming for you. We're going to be <laughs> breaking right. news all over the place.
1: Well, what's going on? Anything, anything you want to talk about before we talk about this meeting?
0: Oh man, I don't know. Soccer season starting to get into full swing. Yeah, I'm we, playing, um, we got football practice, baseball
1: practice, soccer practice. It's it's yeah, busy at the Wicker House. Starting
0: to get the scrimmages in, and starting to figure out if I've uh, got a goalie on my team or not. And we're uh we're, you know we're we're working on our practices and yeah, because she's now um, what twelve U I guess probably she's twelve U. Yeah. Coach uh, Coach Ben is big not, field. It used to be Coach Ben could run past all the players with ease and now these, these these girls are growing up and they're getting quick so i gotta start uh i gotta start losing some lbs or they're gonna be uh i'm gonna keep be, up I'm gonna with them we- anymore, i'm though. gonna be wheezing out there if i don't start uh slimming up a little bit here I so i cut back on the cheese dip at la siesta or something <laughs> <laughs> well, i know you like that cheese dip man. <laughs> yeah. who doesn't man this is a, a national it's the is, uh, is it the official food of hernando I, I think so. it's i think pretty close hey, dang close hey. i love a good mexican restaurant who doesn't who doesn't why do
1: we have so many mexican restaurants
0: because uh, the parking lots are always full at them on the weekend, um, and every night basically, uh, you go there on Monday lunch, you got it wide open, but any other night they're packed full. But that's right. So we had a, a board of alderman meeting earlier this week, August fifteenth. Uh, the last tip, one in August. Yeah, last one in August. There's some budget workshops. I think that you'll probably uh, notice that the city will have. Um, we are in budget season September fifteenth. The city does have to have an approved budget. Um, state law, right? State statute. I think it's got to be budget. It's got to be balanced too by state law, right? Yes, you cannot. Sure, that's what I've heard. We can't print money. Well, as far as last time I checked, we can't print money. <laughs> we can't print money now, so we got to figure out uh, how to balance that budget. Um, you know, there's been some some goals that the the board set as priorities. Um, having a million dollar contingency is one one part of that. You know that's based around kind of trying to get to that 10% number where 10% of the budget, um, is, is in contingency. Uh, you know, I, I certainly feel like we need to be working a little, a little more rapidly towards that. Uh, but we're, we are getting there year by year. Um, I think when our first year, um, in office, the contingency was around maybe half a million or 600,000. So we are slowly but surely getting there. Um, it, it is hard to save money. Everybody knows that whether it's in your home or it's, uh with uh running any business or you know running a local government saving money is is difficult there's hard decisions to be made so we're in hard decision season but we'll have more uh details on our bud on the uh city budget yeah, as we get I closer we, to that we, day
1: we have a, a workshop that
0: was um Thursday last
1: or I guess yesterday when we we're recording this on Friday so yesterday evening we had it we had a, just a brief uh you know I think about an hour and a half meeting uh and kind of hammering out a lot of the details so we're still got some questions Looks like we're going to do a 4% pay raise for our employees. Um, looks like um, it's going to be, uh, I think, one additional police officer hired. We're going to buy additional ambulance. Uh, that's going to be stationed at the city hall uh, to provide a third ambulance to the city of Fernando. Uh, that's a $300,000 $300, expenditure that's, you know, very needed, though. I think the you know the, those things,
0: um, when you need an ambulance, you need an ambulance, Ben. So. That's true, and, you know, that was something that, you know, 2017, uh, the first time I ran for alderman, I campaigned very hard on the fact that the city of Fernando only had one full-time ambulance, and then a second one was added uh, by the previous administration. Now we're adding a third one. So uh, three fire stations, each one will be uh, equipped with a uh, ambulance, um, and we'll be working towards getting that ambulance staffed. Obviously, it's not something where you, you know, it's not like you know, buying a car where you just go to a yacht a lot and there's a bunch of ambulances sitting there. It does yeah. take some time to get those. Uh, but sometime during this next fiscal year, you'll, uh, have that third ambulance come in. We've made some renovations as well with fire station one. Um, those are, uh, should be completed by the end of September. So that way we'll have space for that, that ambulance and kind of reconfiguring that fire station a little bit. So those plans have been in the works for, uh, for a little bit here, but let's jump into the meeting. Um, all right. I
1: got the agenda here, Ben. So, you know, um, very typical meeting. We start out with a pledge and invocation. Um, hmm you know, they never asked me to do the invocation. I'm gonna to talk to the mayor about that. It's always, it's always you Andrew could, Miller.
0: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I did it like once or twice, and it kind of surprised me when it
1: <laughs> came my way. <laughs> Andrew Miller probably wasn't there, probably. Yeah. Uh, in anyway, uh, claim docket. You know, nothing to really talk about there. Consent agenda. Not, not a whole lot to mention uh, on the consent agenda. Um, uh, the board and the, the the mayor and the board of Auburn, uh will be attending <laughs> a uh, conference in Meridian at the end of October. The small town conference. Uh, I've learned a lot from those in the in the in the past, and hopefully, uh, keep going forward with that. Um, looks like a gentleman, of Benjamin Norton, is going to uh, help build a. Uh, it says here a. Uh, so it's, it's a walking trail, a m- mountain mountain bike trail, at least the so park trail, for his trail. freedom servant leadership. I think he he Working must towards be towards Eagle Scout. Yeah, he's a uh, uh, doesn't say Eagle Scout, but some type of Boy Scout or Eagle Scout here. That's great. I need to write him a thank you letter for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, really about that, let's sit on the back side here. Um, um, we had Rebecca Treadway from the ARC of Northwest Mississippi uh, talk about uh, a funding request. Uh, that, that's a great organization. I've worked with them closely in the past. They, they do uh, advocate for special needs mm-hmm. uh, people our children and try to help them find employment and things as they get older. Uh, uh, somebody with the Chamber of Commerce asked for some funding. We're going to give her the same funding we've given in the past. Um, and then uh, we talked about, uh, just briefly, about the uh, Main Street uh, revitalization uh, grant program. It's a 20% matching grant program through the uh, Mississippi Main Street Chamber of Commerce Association. Do you want to talk about that, Ben, just a minute? Do I uh, put you on the spot there?
0: Yeah, no. Uh, so the the grant that uh, the city will be looking for is around $225,000, about $45,000 match. That's about an 80-20 uh, grant. Uh, you know, part of the money would go towards uh, what's called uplight—they call it uplighting, but I guess it's it's lighting that would shine on the historic—that's um, right yeah. water tower uh, there off the square, which I think is you know that, that would be great. You know, if we could get an 80-20 match on something like that, um, and then additionally replacing uh, you know, street poles and street signage along the main street of. Hernando, um, you may have noticed them uh, if you look at if you're at um you know Robertson Gin Road and Oak Grove Road for example. I know that's one of the street signs that's been replaced with, yeah, the, new with black. the black
1: and the logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So you know if you're in that area, you're dropping your kid off at school, look for those and you can kind of see what that looks like. But basically having those kind of uniformly across Main Street and around the square, kind of yes, uh, you yes. know to, to work towards that. Maybe not. Well, maybe not the square. The square's got that historic district. Signs. Yeah. And that's the county. You know that's a that's right. County. That's right. But um, along the Main Street, um, but replacing those poles. I mean, they're expensive. They're 12-foot poles, um, you know, with the signage. Some of that stuff's about about $100,000. So, um, you know, it's something that would be a, a, a big drain on, you know, the general fund and our street signage budget. So, um, you know, potentially a state grant that may or may not get awarded to us. We'll have to wait and see on that. And then the uplighting for the, uh, the water tower. And then there's also some uh, AI technology, I think, that they wanted to use. Big, um, big
1: brother stuff, man.
0: I don't know. It 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 said something about foot traffic and it's kind a, of, It's a geo
1: fence, so that way they go. can they can track. You know who who's coming to her down to the shop and things like that. Just a, 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 using Get some data of the available, ta- yeah. So you can say, You know, when we have the um, uh, what's the Christmas thing? Dickens of a Christmas thing. Yeah. We can see. You know, twenty five percent of these people came from Texas, or you know, whatever. So.
0: And it helped. I think it, you know potentially, you know, data like that can help the board make a data driven decision on you know, do we need to increase funding for, you know, Dickens of a Christmas or whatever it might be? Well, you know, let's look at the data and see, like, is foot traffic up? Is it down? Is this working? Is it not working? Do we need to do different? Do we need to do something different? Do we need to try a new idea? Um, You know, and and that sort of thing. So I think it will, you know, if that's awarded, it would potentially drive some of that. From a historic standpoint, though, I feel like the lighting and the signage is probably, you know, pretty applicable. So we'll, we'll just see how that grant funding comes down or if it comes down yeah so
1: uh next next item was the uh, uh the long-term short-term disability uh, rates yep. we, we reduced those nothing mm-hmm. uh, another another you know backdoor pay increase or pay decrease for the employees or uh, pay increase for it's the pay employees. increase i'm yeah. sorry yeah, yeah, yeah pay increase. Uh, approved a uh resolution determining the cost of special capital sewer and improvement to the services at Hernando uh, west project so as some people may know the city uh before we were on the board been um decided to borrow some money essentially co-signed a loan for the developer there to uh, put in sewer to that to that uh the back side there of uh, hernando west and they have to pay the note to us and then we have to pay it back uh, to the bank
0: um
1: we terminated the emergency declaration that was on june 18th when we had the microburst storm Uh, and then probably the biggest issue that we talked about was uh, a planning project uh, 1717 the collective at Gitwell Farm as a PUD, uh, where they were requesting to, uh, you know, rezone their uh, agricultural district to a plan unit development, which has kind of been some subject of different different com- conversations, different rumors been put out there. You want to you put some at the bed, Ben, or you want me to?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, first off, I, you know, anytime you talk about development, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, get a little nervous about that because they want Hernando to stay the same. They don't want anything new uh, necessarily coming to the city. What this will do, if you're thinking in terms of traffic on commerce, okay, just think in that term commerce has too much traffic, you need to widen the road. Okay, that's that is certainly something that can be looked at. Another avenue, if you will, for helping traffic on commerce is having development in the northern part of the city or the eastern part of the city off of 269, correct? So with this development, what it does is it creates um, a retail center that uh, will either have some kind of, whether it's a supermarket or a department store or whatever, um, you know, some, uh, a couple, you know, several shops, uh, re, you know, kind of a retail center there off Getwell and Bahalia, um, and it will potentially draw traffic to that area, right, because now you have somewhere to shop, somewhere to grab, you know, a bite to eat, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, They're, you know, gas station, you know, th- those sorts of things. People on the eastern side of town now know, potentially would not have to go to Commerce Street, to Mackinvale to, to get these things. They have another uh, retail center to potentially go to. Um, there are, there's also residential that's included with it. And the reason why the residential is included is because you have, you know, a commercial center. There's hotels. Uh, there's two hotels, I guess, proposed. Neither has been necessarily confirmed. There's no paperwork. There's no agreement that's been signed. No, he has no flag two, or
1: whatever they yeah. call it. Um,
0: you, know, you know, department store, supermarket stores. And then you have a, a mixed-use uh, retail residential center where the bottom floors, kind of like a silo square. The bottom floors of four or five buildings have storefronts. So whether it's an insurance a business. It's a bakery. It's a coffee shop. It's a sandwich place, jewelry store, whatever it might be on the bottom floor. And then going up from there, you have uh, residential lofts where people can, can live. The front parking on these buildings will be for the businesses uh, and their customers. The parking behind them will be meant for the people who would live in those, those lofts. Um, you know, I think Chad and I asked a lot of questions around that because, what we felt like people in Hernando do not want are necessarily, um, you know, freestanding buildings meant for extremely dense. Um, yeah, extremely so, so you dense would think the Magnolia units. apartment complexes. Right? right. Something you know, something that I felt where it's 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 freestanding buildings that are, uh, you know, eighty units per building. That is not what this is. Um, this is uh, you know five buildings that are ultimately going to contain um, one hundred and seventy-five. Uh, 180 um, residential units that are two to three bedroom. It could be for retirees. It could be for people trying to get their start here. It could be for professionals that, you know, you're a FedEx pilot that you're going to be based out of Memphis for two to three years and you sign that contract and you don't need a 30 year mortgage. You need somewhere that you can live for a little bit. You got some, some shopping, you got access to the interstate where you can get to the airport really quickly um, and, that, and that's the best option for you. So um, that, I think that's what it's geared towards. Um, one of the things that I did, and, and then we have you know, some single family homes uh, from there and to be kind of a transition buffer on the south side of it on Bahalia. Uh, some single-family homes that are minimum 2,000 square feet uh, before you get kind of a more residential area off of Bahalia. Sure. Foxwood Circle and some of those areas there. But, uh, you know, what I did, you know, kind of proactively from, you know, the seat that I'm in is I asked to be on the architectural uh, review committee um, for this development, and they they graciously uh, allowed an elected official to be on there, uh, mainly just to drive accountability and to say, hey, Mm -hmm. look, you guys said that you wanted – 10 foot ceilings on these homes and and, and residences and that they were going to be 12 inches above the street and just these extra um, expenses that the developer's willing to put in there uh, to make them higher end uh, buildings let's make sure that happens you know so i certainly wanted to be on that committee um to to kind of drive that accountability but what this is not is um you know a five or six building apartment complex with save a lot you know yeah, I mean I, that's that's not necessarily the, the the goal here. The goal here is to uh, use a new interstate exit to one drive traffic, oh, you know, away from kind of the busier streets in Hernando, sure. um, you know, to a northern and eastern part of the the, the city. Uh, another part of this that you have to really consider is that this is barely in the city limits. It, it is lit. It's within the first five hundred feet of the city limits. Yes, yeah, right that The reason why this is a benefit is that you saw this with Lauder Road right Lauder Road's the next exit down on two sixty nine uh they looked at a travel center there um and the, the people there you know fought against it did not did not want that there um the when if you had something like that they got developed outside your city limits what happens is You know whether it's a travel center a diesel center whatever you want to call it a you know overnight truck stop whatever it is if it's outside of your city limits you have no control over it but you get all the consequences from it increased truck traffic you know uh, you know whatever the unsavory elements of that might be if you have a development that occurs inside your city well now you have control you get your alderman on an architectural control committee right that's right you you put you put all those elements in place and now it's, what are the standards of the community? What are people expecting? And you've got a little more control over the development with with all the benefits of increased sales tax, increased property tax development. that's 77 right. acres of land yeah. that's agricultural farmland. You're probably getting about 2000 to $2,500 a year for the city of Hernando from property taxes the the upwards swing of that is probably gonna be, you know, half million dollars a oh, year. Yeah, just on property tax. Just sure. on property tax. Um if, if all when all this stuff comes to fruition. Now, timeline wise, you're probably talking five or six years, if not more, before this really, you know and that and that's based on economy and a lot of other factors. What you'll probably see first is what do you think? Well, I think the first thing you're gonna see is have to get the sewer there. That that's
1: what I think to, um, and to somebody I think uh there's a lot of going on. I think it's about four million dollars to get the sewer there, the way they want to mm-hmm. bring it through there. So, until somebody pays four million dollars uh, for the sewer, there's going to be nothing there. Uh, but going going back, Ben, you know, when the city of Fernando decided to annex that that area when they when they realized 269 was coming through there, uh, the Mackinville, uh exit there, when we, we got the four corners there, I mean, that was the plan is to have commercial uh, retail space there. And 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 so it's 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 kind of it's kind of uh, thinking about it now. It's kind of funny to say that people, some of those people who voted for uh, annexing that area, is now opposed to commercial development there. Um,
0: so I, I, I don't I, understand that. Yeah, and I think that so there was uh, a development that was proposed, you know, uh, more than a year ago. Um, near there that was looking for you know distribution centers yes, warehousing yeah. to come there yeah, we we didn't feel and, that was that would hurt that, right. you know and you and I voted against that yes. we both voted and, against that and that failed and but well but what we said in that meeting i think was kind of universally agreed to well there's a couple of aldermen that voted for it they just said you know we need development sure. whatever um but i think what was universally on the same page was this isn't necessarily what we're looking for we're looking more for a mixed use commercial residential development that kind of you know mimics that silo square you know kind of upscale look this is you know, maybe not necessarily to that level but it is very close to that level um of, on this development so that's the standard that i have i guess going on to that that architectural review committee yes that's, that's right. what we want to see because i feel like that's what people in hernando want now, well whether, and hernando was just
1: we got to get some commercial. Um, taxes. We so we we just cannot yeah. live off the residential growth. It, it, it's we're we're stretching our resources thin. We have to start getting some retail and commercial development, and we have those corners sitting there. And a lot of, because there's no water and sewer there. That's that's what the holdup is. Mm-hmm. But hopefully we with this type of development and this type of investment there, they will um, get the sewer. They're going to make uh, infrastructure improvements to by hell you end, um, and get well there. Um, I think I hear, I hear there rumor that there's a plan for the Northern part, I think Ben. So. Yeah,
0: potentially, potentially. I don't, um, I don't know whether that'll come to, come to fruition or not, but, um, you know, Chad, I think we said it during the meeting or I, I, you know, I said it during the meeting was if you have, let's say a neighborhood, uh, that somebody wants to develop in Hernando and it has 300 homes in it, that is, that's a, in business terms, that's a, a negative or a red, <laughs> yeah uh, yes. business deal for the city. Each one of those houses is going to generate maybe eight hundred dollars in property taxes for the city. So, eight hundred times three hundred, you know, twenty four grand. Yeah. Well, and That's,
1: this and this this location is is a prime place for a Chick fil A for a you know any any type of restaurant like that. I know you want the razor sure. canes. Uh, things like that. So,
0: every we got to We need look, we clearly we need more chicken places. Clearly, that's, right. that's the only places we ever mentioned is raising Cane. Probably, probably a
1: Mexican restaurant would be good up there.
0: At least one. We got to have at least one. Come on. It's not a, it's not a development, Hernando, so, without a, without and, a Mexican uh, restaurant.
1: And, and again, you know, I know I think there's
0: i just heard, you know,
1: I've had people reach out to me uh, that there may be some, some people up, upset or against this. But at the meeting, one person spoke, and I think I would say he was probably at the end of the day for it. Uh, he didn't really. Think he all he wanted was a fence mm-hmm. between his property and, and the next piece of property, and I think the uh, developer agreed to do that. So,
0: right, and there's a and there's a, a property owner group, property owner association. Uh, you know, it's not a homeowners association, the property owners association gets a little bit different situation there, but I think that'll kind of keep some things in check and kind of you know meet the standards of the community. And, um, you know, ultimately, people are in different phases of life all the time. You know, my parents, uh, for example, um, you know, are retired, they're in their 70s, um, and when they they, they downsized, you know, big time with where they live now compared to where they used to live, you know, uh, you know, and they, they need something that's 1400, 1500 square foot. And so they had to, they were trying to find something, Hey, listen, we're retired. We don't need three or four, you know, bedrooms anymore. And people are in different phases of life. So to have a, a truly vibrant community, you have different types of housing, um, you know, the, the vast majority of housing in Hernando is 2000 square foot and up, that's right. but there are some, you know, there are some differences there. Um, there are some different, uh, you know, different options available. And that's what, you know, I think that, you know, the, the government, the government should have some amount of control over it, but it shouldn't necessarily be, this is the only thing that we allow built here because that you kind of, you can be bored that line of discriminatory. Yes. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think you could do that, Ben. Um, yeah. and that's
1: what a lot of people don't understand. They think we can... You know, I think that I think you said at one time. Everybody wants to be the last one in Hernando, and um, you know, when when, when other development happens, they just want to be against it. So, um, but you, being in our sitting in our seats, you can't take that position. You have to look at it holistically and make the you know make the decisions you think is best. And I think that's what I did. I think that's what you did. And so, um, anything
0: else on that before we move on? No, I think that's I think that covers right. it pretty uh pretty well, um, you know, for you uh we did look at that we did look at that budget uh thing as well and you know i I think that's a big thing uh waste connection contract we've got that uh you know we've got that potentially coming up uh here soon there may be an increase to uh to to garbage fees here in hernando we left left to be seen may likely i would say it's likely but we has not finalized just yet it's it's going up it's most likely we just don't know what that number is just yet uh, I would say uh, people could probably expect a three to four dollar increase per month yes, um, yes. on garbage collection rates, and um, so that's something to consider. You know, right now you're most likely paying seventeen seventeen to twenty dollars uh, on your garbage collection, just depending on if you. Um, so, so I think from my understanding is going to go from seventeen fifty to twenty two dollars. Okay. That's, that's the proposal right now. Yes. Yeah. So somewhere around there, so uh, about $4 and 50 cents, give or take. Yeah. I guess it depends on if you have recycling and things yeah, like and that Yeah. And I too. think you have there's recycling, it's going to be another,
1: variables. another dollar or something. There's whatever. a lot of variables there, but I, I didn't, I didn't bring that paper
0: with me, but that also includes brush pickup and some yes, of the other things yes, that you yes. have. So um, that, that's what all that goes towards. But you know, essentially a new contract was negotiated with, with waste connections uh, the city did try to extend our contract with them. Uh, we used a clause to try to extend it, but they also have the right to refuse that extension, which sure, is exactly sure. what they well, did. I
1: think, it, and nobody's fault, but I think we waited a little late to start trying to negotiate there. I think we waited to after the contract was expired, and we probably should have jumped on it a little earlier. But
0: well, I mean, so we we tried to ex, we tried to use the extension clause. Sure, I think that that sure. was called in, you know, by our attorney, and they just said no. And but I think that if we had. You, to your point yes if we had looked at this a year ago and said hey this is coming up next year you know a lot of times in the private sector you start looking at contracts a year in advance that's right um you know in the public sector we need to have that same kind of standard so that is something that we're going to have to uh you know improve on and just kind of take as a note as oh, uh, you know we move forward
1: yeah you know we just we just you know it's, it's hard to negotiate you know when you're you're past past it so uh, but, you know, it's I don't think we've really uh, seen a raise increased uh, since 2017. Yeah, yeah. since yeah. I think March of 2017 or something like that. So
0: and prices are going to I think, the you know, the, the pandemic or, you know, if you if, whatever you want to say with it, it caused uh, a labor shortage. Sure, uh, it sure. caused a lot of uh, increased cost. You know, I think that, you know, you can look whether you look in the White House or wherever you want to look, the economy is the economy is causing gas, gas rates to go up 61%, you know, compared to when this, this administration started. Um, and I'm talking about presidential administration, not the city. Uh, a lot of things are are headed in the wrong direction from an economy standpoint. And the the city is, the city just has to face, face the brunt of that. Sometimes businesses have to face the brunt of that. Your oil and gas costs more, you know, things just cost more. I would say, in, you know inflation was at eight nine percent anytime years. inflation
1: goes up and then you know i think a lot of employers um put out some pretty good pay raises you know last during COVID, right after COVID, and uh you know we're seeing that now trickle into the cost of services so um
0: you got to follow the advice my dad gave me one time sometimes you just got to <laughs> out, out earn the difference out out earn the government out earn right. your well, spouse well, well, all you, you want to talk about the sign <laughs> ordinance you want to wait till we pass something on that yeah, I mean, we're still kind of looking at that sign when it's there. I think there was a story in the DeSoto Times that kind of, you know, outlined what our thoughts were on that. Oh, did it? Yeah, so basically. It I that, get quoted? It was essentially um, the Chadwicker show for about <laughs> three or four columns. And at the very end of it, it was like Ben Piper was present at the meeting, and he said that uh, – so, There we go. There we go. Yeah. Um, but we have – during this latest election, you know, I think you saw at some of these voting precincts just uh, – a boatload of signs, you had big signs that were in the right-of-way, you know, really potentially could be kind of a safety concern for sure. It was a safety concern, I think, in in my mind, because there was times where you were going to pull out of a, a polling location, a huge sign, you can't even see oncoming traffic. So there, there's some things that need to be addressed there.
1: Yeah, well, I think what happened is the Supreme Court case right before the uh, municipal elections last time, and um, in any way, uh, and so, anyway, we, we didn't really have a, an enforceable ordinance, and so for the last, you know, since the municipal elections, nothing's been enforced, and it's just, it's just got out of hand, so we're trying to put something in place. Um, you got anything else, Ben?
0: I think that's all we got for this meeting. You know, it was a lot of discussion. Um, certainly, go back on the city's YouTube channel, and you can check out any of our meetings. Um, but now we're going to bring on Sen- senator, excuse me, Dan- Daniel Sparks. You got uh, his name right this time. Finally got it right. Goodness gracious, um, the the juices are flowing now. So let's get uh, Senator Sparks on uh, to talk more about the state legislature and what we can expect uh, from for the uh, the future. <laughs> Originally from Georgia, so I'm still kind of getting to know a lot of areas of the state. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about it. Kind of what you know, w- you know, what industry is there. You know, kind of what the what, what folks are like there.
2: You know, it's a it's a rural part of of our state. We're also kind of at the foothill of the Appalachians. We have uh, two state parks there in Tishomingo, uh County: the Tishomingo State Park as well as JP Coleman. We have uh, Pickwick Lake, which we adjoined to uh, up in the Tennessee area. Uh, The Ten Tom Waterway runs through all three of the counties that I represent. We've got uh, ports on the Ten Tom Waterway, of course, which is the east, uh, eastern side of Mississippi, route to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, A lot of manufacturing businesses have been there over the years. We have uh, anywhere from you know folks like you know Caterpillar, Mississippi Silicon. Uh, Caterpillar was in Prince County at one time, and, and they have a strong presence just across out of the district in Alcorn County. Uh, Tiffin Motor Homes were manufactured there for years. It's, it's been a, a very industrious place as far as that, a lot of farming. Uh, but it is a rural area. I don't have what someone would call any large cities uh, within the jurisdiction, but I do have the distinction of the 52 Senators' I have two home campuses of community colleges within my district. I have Itawama uh, Community College down in Fulton, and I have Northeast uh, Mississippi Community College over in Booneville. So it is uh, we we have p- good public schools, uh, good school teachers, uh, you know, A-rated schools on a regular basis, and you know, it is a great place to work and raise a family.
0: So that's like the it's, it's like the Slugburger Capital of Mississippi, right? Is that right? Am I getting this right?
2: What. Well, <laughs> The Slug Burgers just across in Alcorn
0: County. Okay, I got you. I got you. I'm trying to. I'm. I'm trying to get better now. <laughs> to
2: think I was trying to take <laughs> away her, uh, Slug
0: Burger. <laughs> I got you. I got you. I heard that. Well, uh, that's that's one of the things I have yet to to get to be fully a part of is that Slug Burger Festival over there. So when I when I heard when I uh, was hearing that, I was trying to figure out where exactly you are. So I got that locked in now. Well, tell us more about. I guess the uh, you know past legislative session, if you can do a little bit of a recap with that, um, that what y'all have seen this year um, so far, I know that it's a, a few months past here, but w- what do you feel what do you feel most proud of and kind of what y'all got accomplished?
2: Well, I, I think that we continue to look at the overall business structure within the state of Mississippi in making the environment to where we can recruit talent, recruit industry. Uh, We've done a lot of work with career coaches in the high schools. Uh, That was ramped up this year. We're trying to focus students on careers that certainly would keep them in the area uh, to find uh, employers who will be in that area. And we talk about the brain drain all the time. And uh, I think for many years, we encouraged people to go to college to get a degree in anything because that represented a job. And the truth is, it didn't. Uh, we would have been better off to really have them focused on skills and things in that area. So the career coaches, I think, have been very successful. They're taking our uh, high school students uh, out to industry, seeing what they're interested in. One of the industries in my district uh, that I visited just a few weeks ago, or a few days ago, actually, on their 25th anniversary, is Northrop Grumman, uh, which is up at Iyuka, uh up near the waterway. And they produce things for the Department of Defense. They produce things that were for our space program. Uh, it is amazing some of the things that they do and some of the things that are, are classified they can't even talk about. And to take a high school student out to a place like that and see that amazing facility, that you know, then they say, I want to work here, and, and how do I get in that direction? So I think that's good. We've continued to try to focus on funding education to the student. Uh, we, we put an extra $100 million this year And instead of just blindly plugging it into a formula, uh, we tried to make sure that it was focused into the classroom. And we've seen our teachers have just done amazing jobs uh, to see the increase. Uh, Some numbers came out just yesterday, again, showing the increases. We continue uh, to see graduation rates now above the national average. We see uh, improvements in math and reading, uh, the fourth grade uh, testing that we're leading the nation in improvements. So... Uh, Those things are very important to us. And then, of course, I think tax structure uh, across the board. The the personal income tax gets the most attention. There were two pieces this year that we did for business, one of which was immediate expensing of research and development or equipment purchases uh, that I think that's very important as it relates to state income tax. And the other was software as a service not being taxed, this cloud computing uh, that in the past has not been taxed. Uh, the Department of Revenue was looking at that as becoming a taxable issue. And so we're trying to have that environment that draws good industry. And industry looks at uh, safety in the community. They look at a train or trainable workforce, educational system, um, you know, utilities available to reasonable price, all of those things. Uh, we believe we highlight in the state of Mississippi. And, of course, you know, obviously I focus on District 5 as well. But those are some of the key things that I think we did as it relates to industry. Uh, there were other things that we did um, in looking at uh, children, looking at laws that affect their life, whether it was the pornography, uh, the bill to, to kind of have some age verification as it relates to the pornography, uh, the things in the schools that we felt like that uh, should not be accessible by uh, students and then the um, the REAP Act, of course, which uh, forbid the transgender procedures on minors. Those are those are things that we really shouldn't have to deal with. Um, we wouldn't imagine that those would be something we'd have to deal with. But yet it was before us and, and we felt like those were proper things
1: to do. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all really last, you know, for an election season session, y'all really tackled a lot of issues and got a lot done. Um we we had Delbert Delbert Hoseman on a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and he he had he had indicated some of the things he wants to do forward w- w- move forward with. What do you what do you thought about the uh, you know maybe uh, reducing or eliminating the grocery tax things like that? That's some things we were talking about with him.
2: I think that anytime we're eliminating taxes, I believe is a good thing uh, as long as we're doing it in a fashion where we count the actual cost. We can always count the benefit. If I eliminate the grocery tax, then that's seven percent I'm not paying. Uh, on my groceries when I go and and buy them. But uh, with with municipal government, uh, county government, we need people to understand that that money has often been a major funding source of our municipalities and our counties, and particularly those smaller municipalities that may not have uh, much retail other than a grocery store. Uh, The decision has to be is, are you going to just cut that tax and let the city and county... Uh, fend for themselves for the offset, which means your valorem taxes will likely go up. So it ends up being a tax swap or uh, the state is going to just simply reimburse the municipalities and counties for whatever that lost amount of revenue is. Um, and <coughs> then that ends up being a, um, you know, a diversion from uh, state revenue. So I understand that it's a popular uh, thing to look at, but it's, you know, we, we also had the same seem like group of people uh, when they were trying to raise the sales tax a few years ago to accomplish what they referred to as income tax elimination, saying the sales tax is the fairest tax out there. Well, if it's the fairest tax out there, then we're eliminating it on groceries um, We're people are, it's a consumption tax. So I'm, I'm definitely willing to look at it, but I want to make sure now that we're past primary election season uh, in the majority that we have honest discussions. We don't have sound bite and commercial discussions. We literally have honest discussions of what the numbers mean and the impact that it's gonna have and get input from our city and county leaders as well.
1: Thoughts on the uh, the, the election, the primary election last week. And I know you were a supporter of uh, the Lieutenant Governor and I think that turned out the way we, we were hoping, but uh, just statewide, what, what did you, what's your thoughts on the elections?
2: I, I was... Uh, pretty engaged in the uh, Lieutenant governor's race and, and a big part of that. And I tried to explain uh, to people, you know, in my particular area that I just wanted to share with them what I had witnessed for the past four years. And in the past four years working with both men, I didn't know either one of them really much at all going into that. Uh, But based on my experience in those four years that I, you know, I did support uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman and uh, Senator McDaniel is a very smart, a very calculated person, Uh, but the work uh, product I had just not witnessed over those four years. It's kind of a unique thing uh, when you join the Mississippi legislature is that you recognize to get a bill passed. I've got to have uh, 27 votes on the Senate side. Then I've got to manage to go down and get a majority on, um, on the House side. And, of course, if it's a money bill, finance bill, it's even higher percentages. The lieutenant governor doesn't vote um, only in cases of a tie. There hadn't been a tie four years I was down there. So I didn't like the language when anybody would say that uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman voted for something because he didn't vote for anything or that he single handedly killed something because that was not what I witnessed in in my tenure there. I thought that was a misrepresentation. And then the other things that happened and you asked what we're going to look at. You know, in the next four years, uh, I think campaign finance reform is going to be on the tip of everybody's tongue coming into uh, the the, the January session, because we have about a million dollars of out of state money that flowed into this race through a pack uh, that broadcast ads that I think are um, just at the line of defamation. And they didn't they don't care. You know, this money's coming out of the D.C. area. It's coming out of Ohio. It's being operated. If I understand correctly, uh, the treasurer is the same treasurer as the campaign, which is violation, uh, I think, of the the rules that relate uh, to not coordinating with your PACs. That was one of the most frustrating things I saw, and I'll be very specific. I believe the smear against the lieutenant governor as it relates to abortion uh, was uncalled for, unnecessary. And I hope that it was a negative against the McDaniel campaign because my firm belief is they knew it wasn't true, but they had just enough paperwork they could rely on to legally get over a hurdle of being sued. And that's a pathetic state of um, politics, if that's where we are, that you don't care to character assassinate someone on something you know isn't true. And anyone who has any knowledge of it says it's not true. But because you've got a piece of paper um, that purports something, you just run with it. That's that's probably the most frustrating part of that election.
0: So, in terms of campaign finance specific, are there things that you would like to see going forward in terms of uh, campaign finance reform? What would be, or what areas do you feel like would be some common ground areas where uh, there would be some significant momentum forward?
2: Well, I think to start with, it would be with your pack work because uh, I think that that's where some of the most uh, egregious uh, violations occur because you have money that flows from one pack to another pack, and ultimately you don't know where the money came from. And it's not just identification of where the money came from; it's it's that in Mississippi there is a one thousand dollars limit for corporations to give money. Now, an LLC can give an unlimited amount of money, as I understand the rules, because that's a flow through entity, it's not a corporation. But that is a law, that is a rule. And there is a, a very good possibility that corporations violated uh, that $1,000 cap through funneling it through multiple packs. Uh, so I do think we need to look at that. We also need to look at enforcement. Uh, who's gonna enforce it? How timely does that enforcement need to be and the uniqueness of the um, of the pack dollars that were dropped in that race is that they came in the last two weeks. Um, it was almost as if, you know, someone had just sat back and said, uh, we know what we're going to do is not uh, going to you know meet the criteria, but we'll do it so late and we'll do it in such a blitzkrieg. We will have the uh, result we desire and we'll just deal with the consequences. And that's that's not a good position to be in, because if you're allowed to get away with that, then it will become a a campaign strategy for people.
1: Now, there's been some talk about maybe giving the secretary of state the uh, the ability to enforce some of that. Is that that your position or are you just you're open to uh, whatever, you know, is a consensus of the legislator?
2: I'm certainly open to listening to, to, to what is going to be the most effective manner. I mean, the secretary of state in the state of Mississippi. Uh, is the the primary uh, responsible person as it relates to elections. Uh, I know that there's not a prosecutorial arm there at the uh, Secretary of State, really, as it would relate to that. I mean, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to add layers of bureaucracy. But we need someone uh, who can step up and step up in a timely fashion. But even if you're not able to prevent it in the heat of an election, there need to be consequences that if someone is willing to dump uh, almost a million dollars into a race, if you give them a $5,000 fine, I mean if somebody comes and tells me I'm about to get fined $5,000, that's a lot of money to me. That, that, that'd get my attention. But for somebody dumping a million dollars into a race, I don't think $5,000 gets their attention. Um, maybe it's a percentage of the expenditures. Maybe it's a percentage of the money you brought in. If you're found to be in violation, there has to be someone who is civilly responsible, uh, to address that because otherwise, you know, we talk about state's rights and we talk about independence. We talk about, uh, all of those things on a regular basis. And none of these were Mississippi people. So I find that really interesting to my knowledge, we're talking about out-of-state money, out-of-state PACs coming into a Mississippi election and, um, and trying to message to our voters, you know, to our people here. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, we need to look at what some other states are doing. Somebody uh, out there is probably doing it a little better than we are, and uh, maybe we can maybe we can look at what they're doing and see what we can implement.
0: So just to, for, for people to understand this, um, do you feel like the legislature would have – Oversight for just races that occur inside the state, or would would the, would the campaign finance also uh, any kind of reform? Would it flow over to, to national races as well? Like when it, there's a primary here, there's a presidential election. You know, anything like that would would all of these regulations also go into effect for all those folks as well, or would it? Or you know, explain that I guess out a little bit for for our uh, listeners.
2: Sure, and, and I think that the, it would be primarily the. In state races, there are there's a federal election commission, and they have very strict rules. They have very strict penalties. Uh, they are are much uh, tougher, if you will, on a federal uh, elections. So I don't know that you know we would have authority to step into that federal realm, or that we would need to. It is primarily dealing with what would be our state and local elections. Of course, the secretary of state still has an obligation and a duty. To, uh, to oversee those elections as well as far as the functionality of the state. Uh, but, but it may be that, you know, that there is some area with PAC money uh, that they would be held to the same standard. And again, hey, I don't want to impugn on anybody's right of free speech. I want people to support their candidate. I want them to be able to, if they want to spend money to support a candidate, uh, even if it's somebody I don't support, that's fine. But don't do the smoke and mirrors game of where is this money coming from and who is responsible for this content when you're not supposed to be coordinating with the campaign, but yet you share a treasurer. That's just that doesn't pass the smell test. We talk about free speech. It's something that uh, I do believe the Supreme Court is has a couple of cases in front of it that they will hear in October and probably render a decision in June of next year. And that is going to be related to public figures uh, having social media accounts and blocking and deleting people. That is really one of the primary reasons that I got so engaged and involved in this campaign is that uh, candidate McDaniel began to post some things during the session about legislation that was coming through or nominations. Uh, uh, the superintendent of education is one of them that he began to put on social media things that just were not factually accurate. I was there. I'm, I'm in the room. I know what happened and what didn't happen. And so I began to push back a little bit on social media. And all of a sudden I found myself in April uh, on the 19th that, you know, I pushed back on a comment and I got uh, blocked and deleted on uh, Facebook and Twitter by candidate McDaniel. So I never could uh, understand how a guy who speaks so much about the constitution and free speech would actually block a fellow sitting legislator um, from political free speech in a race. And that is some of the things that we're talking about is free speech is not speech I like. So I, I want to allow speech that criticizes me, and, and and I did. And I received a lot of criticism simply from supporting lieutenant governor. But as I had expressed to people repeatedly, uh, a lot of the activity I took was direct result from the candidate blocking me on social media and trying to uh, thwart any narrative that pushed back on his messaging, which I think in some occasions stretched the limits of, uh, of truth. And, and so, you know, we just need to make sure we're all going to play with the same set of rules um, even when we disagree on a particular policy. And a big part of this race was literally not a policy discussion It was just character assassination, which is which is unfortunate.
0: And here's why I asked some of those kind of national related things. I think when people when they turn on their TV now, they're seeing um, political parties, you know, whether it's in southern states, traditionally southern states uh, that that vote uh, for Republicans or whatever else. But you have, you know, a city that's run by Democrat, Democratic leadership or county Democratic leadership or something like that. And they're attacking national political figures, you know, that like our former president Donald Trump. Uh, I know that, uh, Fulton County, I guess, is you know pushing for you know election uh, indictments and all this kind of stuff. And it, it, you know, my my thought on it is that, you know, I, I haven't seen the Republican Party necessarily do that, uh, you know, just yet with a, na- a national figure. But is is that the kind of the future for national politics now, where you're going to have? Um, you know, state leadership or state political parties try to get involved with this kind of stuff. So, you know, that's that's uh, that's kind of where where the question sort of comes from. I mean, hopefully, that's not where the state of politics is going to. But things continue to seem seem to get more and more more and more polarizing.
2: It, it's very frustrating. And, and as as a profession, I actually do practice law, and and I do a lot of defense work uh, on corporate and businesses as well as uh, criminal defense. It's very concerning to me with the indictments uh, that have come out, the timing of the indictments. And, you know, everybody can run around and say, oh, but, you know, here's a fact that, that makes that indictment uh, seem OK. It's the timing. It's the political narrative around it. And we do not need our criminal justice system to be uh, weaponized politically. And and I find that to be uh, troubling. Uh, at at the very least, and I find uh, that we did not prosecute crime, and you know, this has been an argument for the last several years when people talk about Soros-backed district attorneys, that their intent to a great degree was to try to equalize in some manner the scales of what they believe were past injustices by simply not prosecuting uh, legitimate crime, and we've, we've seen the result of that in California. Uh, we've seen the results of it in San Francisco, where I believe they finally actually removed that district attorney. Uh, they can't run retail in these cities. They've, they've had to put uh, screens up to try to stop the theft. We, I mean, we see it every day. And if you refuse to prosecute crimes such as that, but you have the time to run out and have political prosecutions, we're, we're headed down a dangerous,
0: dangerous path. Now, Senator, you're on. Uh, you're the chairman for corrections. Is that? Uh, is that I don't know. If that's the official title, but what, your official title there. And then also tell people a little bit what would be one of the more surprising elements of what you, what you've learned about uh, corrections in Mississippi and kind of what what gaps there may be. What would surprise you know your average voter? Uh, the
2: the actual title I am the vice chair of corrections. One uh, Barnett, Senator One Barnett from Heidelberg, is the chairman and and has done a a really good job. Uh, He had served obviously uh, more terms than I had as far as had experiences related corrections. Well, when I received that assignment, and again, I didn't know that until, you know, they read committee assignments on the floor of the Senate. Um, That was actually one of the biggest problems in the state of Mississippi in 2020. If we can go back to January of 2020, that's pre-COVID. Uh, we had a lot of disarray within the correction system. We're only a few years removed from uh, Commissioner of Corrections. who was under federal indictment. I think that we still had hangover from that. And you begin to look at the functionality of the system uh, from a financial standpoint, uh, from an operations standpoint, an asset standpoint. It's it's. Um, even before you get to human capital, even before you get to the fact that we have, you know, 18,000, 19,000 individuals incarcerated, but you look to the functionality of it. And when I begin to look at it, our recidivism rates, people are coming in, they're spending time in the Department of Corrections, they're coming out, and they're reoffending. And our sheriffs and our, our police chiefs, our law enforcement officers, having to rearrest the same people, send them back, and that is a frustrating cycle, and it's an unsafe cycle for law enforcement. So our focus, what we wanted to do is stop what we had uh, within the system of a lot of violence within the facilities, which we were able to accomplish that. But then to look at what are we doing with the entry? What are we doing uh, to actually correct? I, I said from the Senate floor one day, we called the Department of Corrections. If we're not correcting anything, we need to rename it. And so that began to be our focus. I began to travel to all of the facilities in the state and um, had gotten to the, the, the main four as far as state facilities. And then COVID struck, and that kind of put a, uh, a stop on the visitations uh, of trying to see the assets and see how they were functioning. The thing that shocked me the most is our counties hold um, about a third of our inmates, And there are 15 regional jails across the state that were built, you know, between a decade and two decades ago with some agreement uh, that they would house a class of offender uh, at the county level and that we wouldn't build a new big prison uh, in the state of Mississippi. Well, you also have a tremendous amount of people being held in the county jails. That's not good. These are people that are sentenced to the Mississippi Department of Corrections that were just sitting in our county jails. Well, if we're going to do any correcting, you got to start out with what is their problem. Is the problem that they have a, a drug addiction? Is the problem they have a mental health issue? Uh, is the problem they don't have a marketable skill? And we just, we just were missing the mark on, on almost all those metrics. So um, we have pushed to have programming to be able to, uh, to address that. I'm not happy with the, um, with, with the ground that we've covered. I think some things have been done, but uh, there's much work left to be done there. Uh, one of the things that we did this past year was get an increase uh, for the amount of money paid to the regional jails as well as to our county jails. Because the county jails are not set up to hold these offenders. And the difference, uh, particularly with the folks in the county jail, is that they're taking up space in a county jail that may be otherwise full. And the rate was well below what market was and what maybe municipalities were paying, but also the mental health aspect um, is not being met when someone is just sitting in a county jail. And I think that may be one of our biggest issues I hear from our sheriffs. I hear from our chiefs of police is the mental health issues that we have that are uh, to one extent or the other criminalized because if someone is having a mental health break, who are people calling? They're calling the police.
1: Yeah, right. And you, you, you know, we, we were having a huge issue in DeSoto County, and you, you know, my I'm the jail administrator here, and you were very uh, uh open to helping us, and 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 many times helped us get inmates moved because we were one of those county jails that had, you know, sometimes a hundred state inmates waiting to be transferred. And I will say, in the last six months or so, that's kind of rectified itself. And I don't know if that the legislation you helped pass or just a better relationship with uh, Commissioner Kane. We are down to about probably 15 or 20 state prisoners today. So I just want to thank you for that. Um, as far as corrections is, is concerned, what, what do you see going forward? What are some of the uh, maybe some legislation possibly that's uh, introduced this year to, to help to continue to improve that department?
2: I think that we're, we're going to see maybe as much evaluation as we do legislation. And last year that was a little bit the case as well. Um, There was a major change in the medical provider uh, as far as the contract. Uh, That includes mental health screening. I I want to have a better understanding of what we are doing when people come into the system to identify why they're there. Because at the end of the day, our our number one goal is uh, the protection of the public. And to arrest someone, to spend the tax dollars, resources to prosecute a person, to put them in incarceration – And to bring them out of incarceration no better off or even worse off than what they were when they were first arrested is a failure on the part of the state of Mississippi. And we're not meeting our duty or obligation to the people that are in our custody. So we're going to continue to focus on uh, alcohol and drug treatment inside the facility. Uh, We're going to focus on job training. Uh, We're going to focus on getting people a marketable skill. You know, I want someone who doesn't have a GED or high school equivalency. I'd, I'd love for them to have that, but that's not enough in today's market. Uh, there, there are areas in the industry that people are willing to hire someone who has uh, a a you know a legal mark against them in the criminal world. Uh, but we need to make sure that we're partnering with industry, and there was some good legislation in the last couple of years. Uh, a lot of that spearheaded by Chairman Barnett that would allow an uh, in, in industry to hire someone who is on probation or who is on parole. And if that business uh, was willing to step up to the plate and say, perform the drug testing to, to do some of the things that would allow the person to be gainfully employed. Because remember, most of the people that are arrested and incarcerated ultimately will come out. They will uh, parole out. They'll uh, finish their sentence. And they have, more likely than not, dependence on the outside. There are people when, you know, someone is incarcerated, if they have children, if they have spouses uh, that that rely on them, certainly they're they're not able to uh, participate in those lives when they get out. Uh, We want to make sure that they can work uh, to to, to be able to support their family, potentially maybe an issue of of child support, uh, other things they need to do. So someone coming out of prison. And being gainfully employed not only benefits the individual, it benefits their families and it benefits the law enforcement community. Because if I'm working and I have somewhere to live and I have a pathway forward, hopefully I don't have another encounter with law enforcement. But if we just cycle someone through, uh, hold them for a requisite period of time, send them back into their community they have nowhere to live. They have no job. They're going to end up sleeping on somebody's couch. They're going to be with the wrong people and they're going to be rearrested and reoffend. And it's just a cycle uh, that we need to try to break wherever we can.
1: Yeah. What, what, what I what always say is try to try to make them a productive citizen again. Um, so as we get ready to close, uh, Daniel, uh, what, what, what do you do for fun? I know you. I think you're recently married or been married a couple of years. What, what do you do for fun?
2: Well, I, yes, I am. I, I got married in uh, December of 21. Very, very fortunate. Got married a little later in life, but uh, you know, I, I, I think I waited for a great one. So, uh, so she is, and, and she enjoys the beach. Uh, I look at it like this. If she enjoys the beach, then I enjoy the beach because she enjoys the beach. But uh, uh, I might hit a golf ball occasionally, but uh, but I, I generally enjoy uh, the work that I do. You get a lot of constituent calls outside of session. And it is very rewarding when you when you learn uh, the, the, the the interaction and the people to put people in contact with to help them, whether it's a uh, it's something for their occupation, it's something for their education or an issue they're having with a state agency. So, it you know, the legislature is considered a part time job, but it's the um, it's the fullest part time job I've probably ever had. But it's, it's very fulfilling. I enjoy it. But uh, I, I don't. I don't hunt and fish as much as I used to, but but I certainly enjoy uh, being in the outdoors, enjoy the opportunities to get out amongst people, and uh, maybe even pick up a guitar every now and then and play a little music. So it's a it's, uh, very blessing.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for being on, and, and thank you for serving the state. I know you've helped us out quite a bit with issues we had early on with MDOC, and, and that's how I got to know you and through Mike McClendon. So um, if uh, anything do for you up this way, let me know, okay? Appreciate it.
2: Thank you all so much. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you.
0: Thank you, sir. All right, that was uh, State Senator Daniel Sp- Daniel, right? Daniel Daniel Sparks. Daniel Sparks joining uh, joining joined us from the northeastern corner of the state um you know vice chair of corrections as he mentioned on that you know definitely very informative call kind of talking about the politics uh currently in the legislature and in the state um and also just kind of the state yeah, of campaign I... finance reform some of those other things we hit on
1: yeah i got to know daniel um i guess two or about two years ago when we started having some issues with mdoc and i reached out to mike mcclendon and he put me in contact daniel he's been a great advocate for us to help get you know prisoners moved and get things done in the in the jail so uh, figured we'd have him on. He, he's very well.
0: University uh, of Mississippi guy, Ole Miss guy.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, at the law school. And, um, there you go. Uh, I believe his wife, he, he didn't mention her name, but I believe she works for, uh, I think at one time maybe worked for Phil Bryan or something like that. Okay. She, she's in politics as well. So
0: Okay. Well, good deal. Well, folks, we appreciate you all joining us here on this call. We're going to continue to have – uh, or not on this call on this podcast. What are you doing, thanks man? for calling. What are you doing, Thanks for man? calling in. Us. Uh, You've been out of whack all and, week, man.
1: You missed me. I know. And stuff, out of man.
0: control. Out of control. Well, you know, we all got things to do, but um, uh, appreciate y'all joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you for listening. Uh, next time, we're going to probably be breaking down more of the budget. Um, the, we the city does have to have its budget uh approved and finalized by september 15th so that number's uh, you know yeah i think uh
1: i think we're gonna ch- try to have our budget approved on the next meeting september 5th so uh, on our next episode i guess we'll probably be just talking about the uh the, the it won't be proposed budget the actual adopted budget at that point so
0: keep it locked here on the Boardroom podcast uh this is Ben piper and i'm chad wicker thanks for listening